Hello, I'm your host, Vlad Yunusov. This episode is supported by my law practice. Once in a while, I record the show for you. I love it, but my day job is commercial litigation, and I've been doing it for 12 years. I'd like you to know that your referrals are safe with me. You can find my contact information on my website at lotsio.ca. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unisoft Question. I have a great guest today. His name is Harpreet Seni. He is a criminal lawyer from the greater Toronto area, but specifically, more specifically, from Brampton. Hello, Harpreet. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Happy, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's my great pleasure. You're a bit of a celebrity on uh, uh, the socials, on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, well, I think so. How did you... Uh, Get to be a celebrity on Twitter. How? Tell me about that story. Well, it's really just dumb luck more than anything. I, I set up the Twitter account, and uh, at first, the intention was to uh, tweet interesting things about the law and uh, new cases that come out and whatnot. And that was a niche that's been filled already by people who are very <laughs> good at it and better than me. And then more and more, I just started tweeting nonsense which is sometimes law-related, sometimes not. And people like that, I guess. Uh, I guess people like the idea that lawyers can also be parents and have real lives and be interested in pop culture. And I, I still sometimes tweet law stuff, but not a lot. And uh, I guess it's just what people connect to. So there you have it. I really like this concept of nonsense. It reminds me of a very famous TV show that was about nothing. So uh, your Twitter uh, is about is about nonsense, which is to me is has a deep philosophical meaning, uh, because nonsense could also mean sense that's opposite to the common sense, to uh, what people uh, expect from a criminal lawyer to tweet, right? Commonly, and you do something opposite from that. Uh, speaking of which, you tweet a lot about your kids. So I assume you're you have kids, you're a dad, and why why do you you know a lot of lawyers are very reluctant to talk about their family or or children. You are open about it. Uh, why do you do that? Well, it's it's a big chunk of my day, right? So I uh, I have two kids. They're now ten and eight. They're in school right now. Uh, my wife she works a lot, and because of the nature of the work I do, I'm home a lot more. Uh, so I get to be the primary caregiver in a lot of ways uh, and so because that's a big chunk of my day that's going to be a big chunk of the things that I that I tweet about it so happens then that people relate to that and also I guess it's, uh, it's still unusual for people to see uh, the father being the primary caregiver which is our situation and that's a good thing for people to see that hey it doesn't always have to be mom it can be dad as well and in fact, dads should be doing more. Dads should be doing more to of the pickups and the drop-offs and making lunches, et cetera, et cetera. I do it and I want other people to see it as well. So I, I tweet about my kids because that's a big chunk of my day. And uh, that's what also what people relate to. I uh, feel very um, 
related to this, I also uh, spend a lot of time with my kids, and uh, I'm very happy that uh, we're similar that way. Speaking of kids, let's talk about the time when you were a kid. Do you All still right. remember? <laughs> I do have a recollection of when I was a kid, yes. Where Where is Heart Lake Secondary School? Heart Lake Secondary School, so it is in Brampton. You go okay. all the way up to 410 if you're familiar I, with I'm originally from from Brampton, Brampton. Sorry nice. that I so sorry that I double spoke from and Brampton. I originally from Brampton. So you know that. Brampton, North Brampton. Uh there's a high school called Brampton Lake Secondary School, and that's where I did my my high school many, many, many moons ago. Still there. Right. So you were born in Brampton. And uh, did your parents uh, come to Canada from uh, India? Do I understand it correctly? Yeah, I actually was not born in Canada, but I was came to Canada when I was very little. I was a, I was an infant when I came to Canada, uh, but uh, pretty much you could say I was born in Canada. All my upbringing is in is in Brampton, essentially. And uh, my parents came here from Punjab, which is in India, uh, and. Uh, yeah, so that that's our story. We we showed up here in August of 1977, my mom and I. Technically, you are an immigrant like me because I wasn't born in Canada. I came to Canada when I was about 20. Yep, it's not even technically, yeah. it just is. I, I, <laughs> okay. And one of the funny things about discourse is uh, in, in Canada is you can change a lot of things about who you are, your politics, your uh, how you feel, your job, whatever, whatever, whatever. But... Once you are an immigrant, you are always an immigrant. And that is something that does not change about you. You could be in Canada for 70 years, 60 years. It doesn't make a difference. But once you have the label of immigrant, that's what you are. And it never changes. So we're both immigrants. I bear that label with pride, everyone. Anyway, <laughs> so when you were growing up, and you remember your parents when you were growing up, right? I do. Uh, you remember what they were like. Um did they uh, set you on any particular career path from childhood? Did they expect you to be someone or did they give you a lot of freedom, basically do whatever you want kind of thing? No, I mean, the, no one knew where we, we where I would end up. I didn't know where I would end up. Uh, my parents, they worked long hours, as is frequently the case with, with your typical immigrant story. A lot of my upbringing was with my grandparents who were living in the house with us and with many uncles and aunts and whatnot. And really it was a matter of go to school, study hard, work hard, and you know get a job. So there's all that type of pressure. Uh, with many South Asian families, the goal is either doctor, engineer, or accountant. Those are the three things that they push you towards. And I ended up being none of those. Uh, in a lawyer in India is at the time is, was not considered a high profile profession. Uh, compared to the sciences, compared to doctors, engineers, and accountants. Uh, so in a way, at first, it was a step down to be a lawyer because uh, he wanted me to be a do doctor. That did not work out. I mean, I still could go, but that, that bridge has probably been passed by now. So you no, no one did. You come from a Sikh family, right? Yes. Did you feel the influence of the Sikh culture as you were growing up 
uh, the influence of that culture on your education, on your career choices, or, or maybe with the wisdom of hindsight, you can say, yes, this was the Sikh culture that did this. This is the Sikh culture's influence. And if yes, can you tell us about that more in, in detail? Sure. Uh, so re my religion is not something that I, I, my relationship with my religion is not something I really talk about a lot. It is a part of me and it is important to me. Uh, but when you say how you end up where you end up, it's going to be a combination of many different things. And religion is one of them for me. Uh, I know that in, in Sikhism, uh, one of the things that we focus on is fighting and, and, uh, and fighting for the underprivileged, for the people who cannot fight for themselves. That's something that runs through, a common theme that runs through uh, our religion generally. So for me to be a criminal defense lawyer is actually very much in line with that religious upbringing. And it's not something that was that was explicit in how I made my decisions, uh, but that in combination with everything else uh, brings me to where I am now. You know, one of the themes of my, of my interviews with criminal lawyers mm -hmm. is just trying to figure out why people become criminal lawyers, because it's not a very easy career. No, it's not. And you are, you have just revealed yet another factor, uh, at least for some criminal lawyers, why criminal lawyers become criminal lawyers. Were there any other reasons why you chose this? Let's be frank, difficult field. It is difficult, and you're right. Uh, it, it's a tough area to get into, and it's a tough area to live in. Uh, but first things first, criminal defense lawyers, or criminal lawyers in general, we want to be in court. Uh, we are in court most days. We are in court more than your other litigators. Uh, if you're a civil litigator, uh, and you if you're a civil lawyer and you call yourself a litigator, uh, that's great, but as criminal lawyers, we laugh at you a little bit because we are the real litigators. We are in court all the time. So then the question then becomes, is you want to be in court? Fine. You're going to go into criminal law. Do you want to be a crown or do you want to be a, a, a defense lawyer? I think that uh, if you are more likely to question uh, those who are in position of power, if you are more likely to question the status quo, if you are more interested in fighting for the uh, underprivileged, the marginalized, those who live at the periphery, of society, you will gravitate towards the criminal defense bar, because that's what we do every day. Uh, we, we fight for the marginalized. And uh, in doing so, we fight for all of us as well, because the role we play is so important to society at large. Do you think that some criminal lawyers, at least some criminal lawyers, also go into this field because they want to fight not just for the underprivileged, but also against the government, the privileged, the system because of their distrust for uh, the tradition or for the institutions. Oh, hundred percent. There is a there is a strong rebellious streak in the criminal defense lawyer. We are in our heart of hearts oftentimes rebellious, and that and that makes us again gravitate towards the criminal defense bar because when we fight in any case we're not necessarily fighting against a single person we're fighting against his majesty uh, itself that is our opponent uh, his majesty the king who uh, sends his representatives to 
persecute and prosecute our marginalized clients. And there's an appeal to that for many people. Right? It's understandable. I get that. So you talked about litigation and you talked about doing a lot of uh, courtroom time and being in the courtroom a lot. And I assume you include trials in this time. Yes. You, I assume you do a lot of trials. So I know that criminal lawyers do a lot of trials. Uh, there are different criminal lawyers. Uh, I asked this question um, when I talked to Danielle Robitaille, and uh, she explained uh, the distinction. There are criminal lawyers who do a lot of trials because, for example, they work with legal aid uh, with legal aid, so they have a large volume of, of files, and there are criminal lawyers who uh, no, don't do so many trials, but they still do a lot more trials than civil lawyers. You're right about that. Uh, how many trials do you do on average per uh, month? So it depends, uh, your typical lawyer answer. But you will go through stretches where you have longer cases, and for example, if you have a jury trial the last three months, then in that month, you've done one trial. It was one trial, it was a jury trial, it took the entire month. On the other hand, if you have a string of months where you're doing a bunch of Ontario Court of Justice, OCJ trials, you can do a couple of trials a week. And they could be some smaller domestic trials or over 80 impaired or assault cases. And you can do one, two a week. And uh, you can get up, you know, I, I think more than two a week is unhealthy. I think around one or two is is about as much as you should do. So if you're doing if you're doing a bunch of smaller trials, around four or five a month is is about your limit, I think, uh, in order to maintain a balanced practice. But if you're doing a jury trial, that's that's your month. So it really depends on the type of work you're doing at any given time. And when you say a smaller trial, I assume you talk about the scope of the charge or the offense, or are you talking about mostly, or maybe you're talking about the complexity of the issues? It's everything, right? And everything. like a, a basic domestic trial with, with the allegation of domestic assault, you're going to have your complainant uh, who takes a stand, you're going to have one or two officers, and that's a trial that can be done in a day, two days, it's going to, going to be relatively quick. A uh, What we commonly referred to as an impaired overrate, drunk driving. Uh, again, that's a one or two day trial because there's a limited number of witnesses uh, and it just doesn't take as long. But a jury trial involving, uh, I have a homicide scheduled for, for next year. We've got three weeks of pretrial motion starting next week. And then we got three months of trial next year because there's like a hundred witnesses and it's gonna take a long time. So it really depends on, on the case you're doing, right? Every case is different. So this is becoming very interesting to me now. And uh, of course, one of the things I, I liked about you, and I've noticed this a long time ago, is that you are open to educating others on Twitter in particular, and you really like sharing tips and advice. So I am going to start probing deeper with my, let's say, amateurish uh, commercial litigator um eyes amateurish in criminal law I, I i'm not the criminal lawyer i don't practice criminal law i practice only commercial litigation but i think we share enough uh, common principles that we can speak uh, the same language and we can uh, use the same vocabulary and i can understand what you're talking about maybe my questions will not be so stupid so you just said that sorry 
I know they're not going to be stupid, but go okay. on. <laughs> Thanks. So the, you just said something very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, to someone who comes from a document-heavy uh, litigation culture, you said that you will have a three-month murder trial with 100 witnesses. Yes. So to me, and I'm not an expert, but a murder is a quick and discreet event. I've never tried. Maybe I'm wrong. But it seems like it just happens very quickly. And I don't understand where the hundred witnesses come from. And I don't necessarily I don't necessarily understand where three months come from. So other uh, so the witnesses, the large number of witnesses to me, suggest very complex issues of fact. You also mentioned several weeks of pretrial motions, which to me suggest very serious issues of law, probably charter rights, right? Probably uh, um, violations of charter rights, incident to arrest, or something related to evidence, something like that. So, But now let's focus on the issues of fact. Okay. Three months, 100 witnesses obviously extremely complex issues of fact but why isn't isn't a murder just a murder or is it a hundred murders no it is not a hundred murders it's only one murder uh however uh actually this is one thing that courts have talked about uh in lamenting the state of criminal law is how complex cases have become uh and when we talked about uh when we talk about jordan and delay uh, there's a distinction between complex and particularly complex. Uh, given that one of the pretrial motions that I'm doing is to get the charges stayed because of uh, the delay involved, I'll, I, I'd be uh, stressing to say that this case is not particularly complex. This is a typical murder case. But what makes these cases lengthier is that the stakes are so high, everything has to be done more carefully, and every case stands on its own. But in these cases, you're more likely to have a bunch of... Uh, uh, expert evidence with regards to CFS Center for Forensic Sciences. You're going to have uh, experts talk about uh, drugs in the system, cause of death, postmortem. There's a whole bunch of expert evidence with regards to that. Oftentimes, these cases will have uh, lengthy investigations, uh, and these investigations will involve could involve uh, wiretaps. It could involve cell phone evidence. They could involve all different types of uh, areas of lengthy investigation, uh, which takes time to litigate and takes time, takes time to present. You're going to have a series of police uh, investigating. They, they do searches. All that has to be presented. And then you're going to have your actual civilian witnesses, the ones who say, I saw this, I saw that. And that can be time consuming as well. If you have multiple co-accused, that doubles, triples the amount of time necessary because now you have two or three lawyers all of which have to protect their independent clients. So especially when you get to the more serious cases, uh, everything becomes far more painstaking because the stakes are so much higher. Uh, You're not going to get wiretaps on a typical domestic assault where uh, one spouse hits the other spouse. It's going to be far more basic. The investigations are more basic. The allegations are more basic. You get it done in a couple of days. But a murder investigation is going to be a far bigger thing, far larger, extensive thing, which means there's just more to present. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that uh, there are two sources of complexity in this particular murder trial. Uh, 
the number one uh, source is circumstantial evidence or context, maybe the history, uh, evidence obtained by the police that corroborates their story. So context, circumstantial evidence uh, creates complexity. And the second source of complexity is basically the personal injury aspect. Maybe it wasn't murder. <laughs> maybe maybe it's a personal injury trial. You know, personal injury trial, get, get, they, they get really complex because of expert evidence, right? Why did this person die? <laughs> maybe this person died for a completely... Uh, for reasons completely unrelated to the accused, uh, to the accused, right? So, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, that that oftentimes in many cases that will be a legitimate question. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the facts of my specific case, but in general, you know, that could be a live issue. Did this person die because they were uh, shot, or was it because of the drugs in the system? Uh, for example, that's that's a that's a common example. Uh, was it the drugs in the system, or was it something else? Was there a previous condition that ended up killing that person? When did they die? What was the time of death? That can be an important thing as well. And all of this will be based on the forensics that comes out and the expert reports that come out. And that uh, these become oftentimes become issues of litigation and live issues for for ultimately juries to to uh, consider. Okay, and and perhaps for uh, subsequent appeals, and subsequent appeals, right? Yes. Okay, so uh, I'm really curious now about uh, simpler and easier cases. Sure. You said that uh, how many cases, how many trials a, a week? You said it was normal to do one or two. One or two is healthy. There one, are more to do more, and that's yeah. I I say that that's too much. Once you're doing more than two a week, you've got a problem. I think. Uh, so criminal defense lawyers, when they do those trials, do they win those trials uh, on cross-examination? Is there a general pattern like that, or is it all over the place and it can be anything? Oh, it can be anything. So the Ontario Court of Justice, the low courts, which is where these shorter trials happen, it really is the trenches. They really are the trenches of the criminal justice system, where you're really flying by the seat of your pants. right? You You have your disclosure and you prep as best as you can. But you show up, you don't know which witnesses are going to show up, you really don't know what they're going to say, and you're really just kind of going based on uh, what, what what's happening in front of you. Crowns are going to come up with, uh, with uh, legal arguments, and you don't have necessarily have the luxury of saying, Your Honor, let me go research this. You kind of just have to get up and talk. So it's, it's really, it's, it's the trenches, it's the wild, wild west, whatever you want to call it, but there's... You, you really never know what's going to happen. And that's why that's part of the charm of, of uh, Ontario Court of Justice trials that you really don't know what's going to happen when you show up for trial. So in those trenches and those uh, short trials in the Ontario Court of Justice, do you make, as a criminal defense lawyer, do you make a lot of evidentiary objections? Well, or is it, it rare? Uh, well, I mean, uh, oftentimes there'll be charter issues uh, still, you know, you still have to have charter issues, you still have your uh, voluntariness for ideas for statements, these are legal issues. Uh, sometimes you have to be careful with how Crown attorneys will cross-examine complainants, uh, what type of evidence they bring in. And don't get me wrong, if it's a sexual assault trial or whatnot, they can still get very complex, even in the Ontario Court of Justice, with 276 motions, 278 motions, which... For criminal practitioners, that we 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 know exactly what those numbers mean and uh, what uh, comes from those numbers, but 
there, the, I, don't get me wrong, there is a degree of complexity, but it's more, it's also a degree of unpredictability, which is greater in the Ontario Court of Justice. Do criminal lawyers ever raise the rule in uh, uh, Brown and Dunn, for example? You know, the one where the, yeah, you gotta put something it to the... is raised without cross-examination, uh, raising it in cross-examination. Yeah, so that's why that's part of preparation is uh, you have to be you have to have an understanding of what your client's version of events is so that mm -hmm. you put those things to the witness. Now, the rule of Brown and Dunn, it's actually um, uh, oftentimes misunderstood. Uh, you don't have to put every single minute detail to the witness. That is a false thing. That does not have to happen. Uh, but it's important to put to the witness the keystrokes, the, the important things uh, that, uh, that you know will come up uh, when and if your client takes a stand. And also, if you know you're going to make hay out of something in your submissions, you have to put those things to the witness as well. Actually, it's oftentimes the Crown attorneys who mess up on Brown and Dunn because they're not as used to cross-examining because our, our clients take the stand less often. And they're the ones who frequently will forget uh, to put certain things to uh, uh, to to witnesses in cross examination, and then that's when, in submissions, we'll bring that up. But Brandon Dunn is uh, is is frequently misunderstood. I'm curious, what are some of the most common issues of fact that come up in uh, criminal trials? So obviously, you can think about the most common. Um, uh, types of cases or the most common offenses. So I know that sexual assault is common, right? Or domestic uh, assault is common. Uh, mm -hmm. But I don't know that for sure. And I don't know about others. But if we know what offenses are commonly tried in our criminal courts, can we also observe some common issues of facts? For example, in sexual assault, maybe consent is a common uh, issue, very common issue of fact, right? That needs to be addressed at trial. Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. So without having the done the, uh, without having the, the research in front of me, I can say with a very high level of confidence that simple assault is the most basic and most commonly uh, litigated case across Canada, be it domestic, be it barroom bra, be it two buddies, uh, getting into a, into a fight after having a few too many alcoholic beverages, assault, assault, assault is your most common charge across Canada, probably by far. And again, I haven't, I don't have the research in front of me, but I can say that with some confidence. Uh, in the Greater Toronto area uh, and probably other jurisdictions as well, drunk driving is also very, very common. So those are your two most common areas: drunk driving, especially in suburban jurisdictions, and uh, and just basic assaults. The law on assault is actually very simple. There isn't really much to litigate. Uh, oftentimes, it'll be consent-related issues, who started it, who ended it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, oftentimes, it can also be a whodunit. Uh, identity is frequently an issue in assault cases as well. Over 80 impaired drunk driving cases are very much a niche area. Uh, a lot of lawyers do it, of course, but... The lawyers who, who defend drunk driving cases the best are the ones who focus on them the most because drunk driving cases are ridiculously complex. 
and they're very difficult uh, to win as well. As the law, uh, the pendulum swings further and further away from the potential defenses in those cases. We're not going to get into drunk driving today. I promise you, because it's just, okay. it's complex. There's a lot, like a lot. Yeah, yeah. I know that some criminal lawyers do nothing but uh, drunk driving, right? So yeah. they become probably become good experts on that. I'm really interested in juries. So I have never. I have never done a jury trial. Have sure. you done a jury trial? I've done many jury trials. You've done many. Uh, that's that's the difference between civil litigators and criminal yeah. litigators. So you've done many jury trials. Talk to us a little bit about your jury trials. Sure. Bird's so, eye view. Jury trials, uh, more than any other type of law, I'm going to say in general, really brings in the dramatic aspect of our uh, of our practice of our profession jury trials more than anything else is theater where it no longer it, it it's no longer just a matter of being right because you can be right but you also have to appear to be right and everything becomes a matter of theater every movement every uh gesture everything you do is you have to be concerned that you and your client are being scrutinized so Everything as simple as where's your client sitting? Is your client sitting next to you? Or is your client sitting in the prisoner's dock? It makes a difference because if your jury sees your client sitting next to you, that creates a perception, a subconscious one or conscious, but it creates a perception. So a jury trial is very much about theater. How you present yourself. Are you fumbling? Are you speaking clearly? We hope, we hope that judges are able to look past presentation. So if a, if a lawyer is speaking and they're maybe, uh, they're, they're, they're slow, they're kind of fumbling for their notes a little bit, judges are like, yeah, whatever, I'm listening to the content of what you're saying. Juries aren't having that. They want to see you present in a way that exudes confidence and competence. And you can be competent and be fumbling with your notes, but a jury doesn't think that. If a jury sees you fumbling about, they're going to think this guy doesn't know what he's doing. So the, the theatrical aspect uh, of the law is really personified when you're in front of 12 people. Have you ever seen criminal lawyers manipulate juries into acquittals using, yeah. their, using their incredible theatrical aplomb skills uh, and so on? Well, the word manipulate, it has a connotation. So I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say that I've seen lawyers manipulate juries. What I will say is that uh, I, lawyers will use the strength of their advocacy uh, to convince jurors. And sometimes you can have a difficult case, but if you're an incredible advocate, that's, that's what you're there for. That's not manipulation. That's advocacy is what I say. And yes, hundred percent. Uh, I've seen lawyers and I've known excellent lawyers who have taken very difficult cases, uh, but they've managed to convince juries of reasonable doubt. And I would say it's oftentimes a, 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 a creature of their skills as an advocate. That's what we're mm -hmm. there for. This skill set is related to sales, in my opinion, so uh, you're selling something to your peers. Judges are different. Mm -hmm. They are not uh, regular members, regular members of the public. They are professionals. 
just like us. So we speak a certain language with them. You you said that when you uh, told me that judges will forgive you for fumbling with notes and so on and so forth. We but hope. juries juries are from the street, right? They're just people from yeah. the street, regular people, neighbors, and so on and so forth. So if you ask, I think if you take a, an average civil litigator or let's say solicitor, let's make fun of solicitors. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you take an average solicitor and you put him or her in front of 12 people 12 members of the public and you give the solicitor i don't know a deodorant and you tell him sell this deodorant to to them i don't know i think that person will be at their wits end i mean how do you sell i mean unless they're they have sales background but criminal lawyers have to do something so much harder. Yes. They have to sell reasonable doubt. I think it's so hard, so much harder to sell reasonable doubt in murder than deodorant. So what skills separate jury trial criminal lawyers from everybody else that they can do that? It's not just theatric theatrics, right? No. It has to be something that they teach in in sales schools. I don't know, like something interesting, right? So I think what differentiates a regular criminal trial from a jury trial is that in a jury trial, what you are trying to create is a story. It's a narrative, right? And it's a narrative that you you establish based on what your client tells you. So you have the crown version. They're trying to do the exact same thing. They're trying to create a narrative, a story with themes. And that's what they're trying to give to the jury. Well, what you have to do as a criminal defense lawyer is you talk to your client, you review the disclosure, you do all that. And then you create, based on all that information, the, the, the story, the themes, the narrative that you want to present to the jury. Right. And the your most successful criminal defense lawyers will be the ones who will be able to establish a narrative that is that a jury that can then take to their room and say, this is what happened. This is this is what happened on this dark, stormy night three years ago when it was just the person who's dead and the accused person in a room by themselves. Maybe it was this. Maybe it was that. And every witness you cross-examine should further that narrative, right? And when you're successful in a jury trial, it's because you were able to establish that this is a narrative, this is what happened. You're able to sell a story to them. And uh, sell makes it, I, I, I think, kind of uh, belittles it a little bit. I just can't think of a better word right now than that. But that's really what it is. And um, the Crown's doing the exact same thing. Right. It's, we're all doing the same thing with a jury. With a judge, you can you can focus more on uh, on the technicalities or the minutia of the law, et cetera, et cetera. And you do that with juries, too. Don't get me wrong. But with a jury, also, you, you're looking at a broad picture. You want them to be able to go back into the jury room and say, these are the themes that are important to me and uh, to the credit to the defense. And that's what you want them to focus on. So sometimes that theme will be uh, based on the science of it, or it'll be based on none of these witnesses are trustworthy, or 
look uh, or or how small and meek and more likely it is that they're defending themselves the accused is so on and so forth uh but you you want to have a theme you want to have a narrative and you want to have a plan when you go in i don't know if that's helpful or not it's very helpful different narratives touch different people differently even within the same culture you know, different narratives touch men differently from women. Different narratives touch or move mm -hmm. professionals, like legal well, legal professionals are not allowed to be on the juries, but let's say engineers or scientists differently from uh, people who don't have experience with those fields. That's right. And that's just within a culture. But there are also different cultures. And you and I, of course would understand sometimes the, the gulf, the, the, the abyss between different cultures. Sure. And they, the different cultures may have completely different views on what is touching, what is convincing, what is uh, what narrative sells. Okay. Now, juries, I guess you have some input into the composition of juries, right? Less so now than before, but yeah. Well, let's let's assume that they're random. Yeah. Is there a Canadian culture that you can safely assume you're selling to here? That you can safely assume is is considering your narrative for you, or or are you basically anxious that different people on the jury will uh, perceive your narrative completely differently? Oh, 100%. We're in a melting pot here, right? So, like, what do we do? It's not like we're in... Uh, uh, it's not like we're in Poland or something, right? Or or in Cambodia, where mm -hmm. all people are homogenous, pretty much. Even though in, 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 in both in Poland and in Cambodia, they will have different subcultures that can be very different. But still, like, you know what I'm talking about. I, I don't think anything is as heterogeneous as... G the gta society <laughs> yes and yet having said that juries are oftentimes still predominantly white they are still predominantly uh middle or upper uh upper echelons of socioeconomic uh, society uh they are frequently not from the marginalized groups and marginalized peoples uh that we represent so even though you're right everything that you said there Oftentimes, the difficulties that we face, the juries that we get are not representative of the people that they are presiding over. So I'll give you a, a very basic example. In a case where a young, a, a young person of color encounters the police and they run away, a jury hears that. They're, you know, they're predominantly white, they're middle class, uh, they personally have, haven't had problems with the police. They hear that and say, oh, guy ran away from the police. Guilty. Because uh, why would you run away from the police? So then what we have to do from our end in this circumstance is try and help the jury understand that, no, no, no. Listen, if you're a poor person of color in a marginalized neighborhood where the police are not always your friend, you could be an innocent person and when you're approached by the police, you run away because you're afraid that they're going to arrest you for something you didn't do or they're going to beat the crap out of you or whatever the case may be. So, again, that is a narrative. So 
you're right. GTA is a melting pot. GTA has different cultures, et cetera. But the, because juries don't always represent that and they don't always understand the worlds that our clients come from, you have to help them understand that their experiences may differ and probably do differ from those of our clients. This is really good stuff. What you talked about, though, is a cultural generalization, albeit it's, uh, it's a cultural generalization that's favorable to the accused yeah. in the particular case that you described. So I'm thinking back to this case uh, on, on which you commented in the lawyer's daily, uh, the BG case from February, the court of appeal case, R and BG, yes. where the court of appeal said you cannot use cultural generalizations against the accused without proper evidence. I think this is this is the dictum. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm uh, uh, simplifying it too much. But I think this is what they said. That's generally correct. Yep. Yeah. So. Is what you're saying, does what you're saying mean that you you cannot use them against the accused, but you can use them in favor of the accused? No, you shouldn't use cultural generalizations at all. Uh, and uh, an example, a different type of generalization that you absolutely cannot use and should not be able to use in favor of an accused are examples uh, with regards to sexual offenses. In fact, we have an entire regime that prevents us from doing just that. And there's a lot of litigation, a lot of uh, feelings about how that regime works or doesn't work. But no, you, you can't use improper generalizations for or against an accused. Uh, the case you're referring to was the idea where the Crown was, uh, and now I'm simplifying, but the Crown was implying that uh, witnesses uh, who were South Asian were more likely to lie uh, because of cultural related reasons to protect uh, their relative who was the accused, yep. right? And that you you absolutely cannot do. And that's a that's a situation where it favors the accused. But I'll give you another example, uh, which is equally important. Uh, and you can't say in favor of the defense. You can't generalize the way a victim of sexual assault will behave. Uh, after their, after, uh, if they, sorry, I'm stumbling. Uh, you can't generalize uh, based on how you think a victim of sexual assault should behave if they are in fact a victim. So it works both ways. You can't use generalizations, uh, cultural generalizations in favor or against an accused in general. That's a broad sweeping generalization. And I'm sure a lot of criminal defense lawyers are going to hear that and think of a million exceptions and they'll, they'll make fun of me, but they're lawyers. I'm... So they're, they, that's their job. Let them do it. Yeah. <laughs> but you're on the show. They're not on the show. <laughs> so yeah. you have the, you have the advantage. Yeah. Now I still want to go back to this uh, hypothetical sure. uh, that you gave me about this predominantly majority culture jury that interprets uh, the accused running away from the police in a certain way that is uh, common to their culture isn't that still 
a cultural generalization. So they are applying their cultural generalization to this person. And you're advocating for greater representation on the jury because you uh, are making what point? That people who are representative of the culture of the accused will reject that cultural generalization of the majority, uh, uh, they will be neutral, or that they will uh, apply their life-lived experience where people run away from the police because the police is the oppressor. So isn't that also a cultural generalization? Can you explain that a little bit? No, so it, it's a reality, right? So if you live in a certain neighborhood that's affluent, which is uh, with, without a lot of the uh, problems of uh, other more marginalized communities, you may not understand how things work in that community, right? right? So if you have a representative jury, you don't have to necessarily go through the rigmarole of explaining to that jury how things mm -hmm. work in these communities because they already know. So in the situation I gave you, I now have to explain to the jury that no, 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 sometimes people run away from the police because police are dangerous and uh, they, they can beat the crap out of you. And the jury has, oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. But a representative jury is more likely to understand and accept that, right? They're, they're, they're going to get that more. So, so go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, it's, it's not a matter of, of, uh, of a cultural generalization. It's a matter of explaining to a jury a reality about a segment of society that they're just not familiar with. So during deliberations then behind closed doors of that representative jury, do you expect members of the accused culture present on the jury to advocate uh, for the accused or to at least explain or educate uh, the other members of the jury? What 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 is your expectation about that process? The expectation is that, you, well, you hope your client gets a fair trial. And if that what that means is that hopefully the lived experiences of some of the jurors on a representative jury will be able to explain to others that no, no, this is a thing that happens in these communities. And uh, I know that you don't understand that because you live in an affluent neighborhood of Toronto, but no, this is how things work. And then that other member of the jury will be like, oh, really? Okay, now I know this, right? And that's why representation in juries is important uh, so that you have a broader, uh, a broader foundation of lived experiences because that's what a jury is supposed to be, right? A, a representative of the community. But if only a part of the community is represented, it, it, then it's not a proper jury. That's right. Uh, the original term is uh, a jury of his peers, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I guess peers does suggest, imply necessarily connection and representation if, uh, the jury is completely disconnected from the accused. They are not really the accused peers. Well, you're practicing in Brampton. You grew up in Brampton. Mm -hmm. You didn't go to school in Brampton. I mean, there's no there's no university in Brampton. You went to school in Montreal. For undergrad, yeah. 
before undergrad yeah and then you went to osgood which is fairly close to brampton but then you went back to brampton why did you go back to brampton why didn't you go i mean maybe you practiced downtown you practiced with hicks and adams for a while right yeah for uh my first nine years as a lawyer i was with uh, hicks adams i was getting yeah. uh but hicks adams it was a, a cross gta firm so even when i was with hicks adams uh i was still predominantly in brampton and you know for reasons that were convenient for my commute uh, i prefer to be in brampton because I, it's a quicker drive as opposed to commuting into uh, old city hall every day so it worked out so you really you really have roots in brampton brampton is dear to you and you don't want to leave right brampton is near and dear to my heart and it's uh i'm i'm known to be an advocate for for my uh, suburban city which uh takes a lot of flack but brampton's a great place for to grow up i i wouldn't want to it's not perfect not by any means is it perfect there's a lot to work on but it's a good place and uh, i like it here and i like having my kids here and well, i don't know what else to say about that you've been a lawyer for what 16 or 18 years now right yeah something like that 18 years that's a long career in law uh, do you plan to be a lawyer for the rest of your life or do you have any other ideas uh, let me check my lotto ticket. And, uh, <laughs> uh, there's an expression, which I don't like the stereotype, but there, the, a lot of lawyers do say that in criminal defense, you don't retire, you die. Uh, <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like that idea mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of us uh, working ourselves to death. Uh, I hope that you know someday I get to that point where I can slow down and take less cases, but... Uh, I, I doubt that I would quit entirely because you got to do something. You got to keep busy. Uh, but yeah, we, we do need to change the culture of grinding till you die. And I hope that younger lawyers are able to not uh, not do that to themselves. We'll see what happens. I got a long ways to go still. Not good. Any indication that your kids are interested in becoming lawyers? Hope not. Uh, no. <laughs> They're going to be a doctor or an accountant or an engineer. That's the okay. plan. They're going to that's, do what that I could not. That's the plan. Harpreet, thank you so much for this interview. You were very generous. You were educational. You taught me more about criminal law than... Uh, I, I think that you taught me more about criminal law uh in, in a long uh, than, than everybody in a long time ever since alan young was my criminal law professor so alan young taught me a lot about criminal law and you're you're probably the second uh, person uh to him who taught me a lot about criminal law today in a very condensed you're, you're form me an excellent company and uh probably undeserved but thank thank you for that thank you harpreet this was great thank you so much no problem